Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, you can point your browser to bioscience.oxfordjournals.org. For this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Dave Gustafson of the International Life Sciences Institute. His work is focused on the ways that climate change affects agriculture, and the article we're discussing today is the product of a workshop on that topic that was held at Washington University in St. Louis. In the article, Dr. Gustafson and his colleagues call for an agricultural field research network in the U.S. Midwest. The major aim of that network would be to pool knowledge and develop techniques to address the effects of climate change and prevent large-scale grain failures, which, as he explains, are a very real possibility in the not-too-distant future. So let's get straight to the interview. Dr. Gustafson, thank you very much for joining me. Um, before we talk more about the agricultural research network you propose, I was hoping you could give us a little bit of background on the threats that are faced by Midwest agriculture, you know, be those from climate change or other sources. Well, uh, climate change uh, is obviously one of the growing threats to our Midwest agricultural system. I, I would say it's uh, perhaps the biggest one, but it's not the only one. Uh, we also have uh, some other issues to deal with, uh, such as uh, increasing demand uh, for food, uh, and especially more nutritious food. Uh, and our world food system is, is currently delivering enough calories to feed everyone, but is not necessarily delivering, rather, the right uh, mix of nutrients to keep everyone healthy. And so that's one of the other big challenges. But for sure, uh, especially here uh, in the U.S. Midwest, I would say climate change is probably the single biggest threat, and especially uh, in the form of uh, more extreme events. And in fact, here in St. Louis, where I happen to live, uh, we've just experienced uh, a historic, uh, unprecedented flood, uh, in part uh, due to El Nino, uh, but uh, scientists believe it was probably, in fact, uh, worsened uh, by the impacts of ongoing climate change. And one of the things that struck me was that in practical terms, that seems to result in a large degree of variability in potential yields. You know, I, th I think you said a figure of either negligible effects for corn yields or up to as much as a 60% decline. Um, what accounts for that? Well, yeah. And just one clarification, which is a very important clarification, which is that uh, that range that you just quoted uh, assumes uh, the use of today's uh, corn varieties, uh, which obviously have been adapted to current uh, climate conditions. Uh, and in the future, presumably, there will be continuing advances in breeding that will make it possible to offset some of those yield impacts. But if we were to plant today's varieties in that future climate of the year 2050, we would experience that range of uh, possible uh, results as indicated in the paper. And as you say, it could be fairly small effects to as much as uh, 50 or 60% reduction in yields. And that, uh, there are many uh, sources of uncertainty there for, for that uh, particular impact. One of which is the uncertainty in climate, as I uh, have already mentioned, we're not exactly sure what the changes in temperature and precipitation are going to be. We know that there's certain trends, but we don't know that with precision. But just as important in this case are uncertainties introduced uh, by the uh, crop models themselves. Uh, we, we have to use, uh, currently anyway, uh, computer-based uh, simulation tools to try to understand how corn plants will survive in a different climate in the future, but those models uh, actually predict uh, significantly different results depending on the uh, particular 
rainfall and precipitation patterns that we, uh, rainfall temperature and precipitation patterns that we experience. And so those, uh, those multiple sources of uncertainty uh, end up giving you that fairly wide range of impacts. And you propose an integrated field research network to address some of that uncertainty. And I was hoping you could give us a skeletal outline of, you know, what are the things involved um, in creating such a network? Is it a public effort? Is it a public-private partnership? Who are the major players and what does the final product look like? Well, and, and that actually was uh, the essence of our paper. We, we believe that uh, these changes are coming. We know for sure that changes are coming, but we don't know precisely uh, how severe they're going to be and, and what the nature of those changes are going to be in terms of, for instance, uh, increased pests and disease uh, threats uh, to corn uh, in, the, in Illinois and elsewhere throughout the Midwest. And, and obviously the U.S. Midwest is a really, really important source of uh, grains like corn and soybeans and to some extent wheat uh, for not just the, the U.S. Uh, agri-food system but for the world. And and because of it's important globally and because we believe that uh, we already have a pretty solid infrastructure in place uh, for monitoring and improving corn and soybeans here in the U.S., we, we think that this would be the perfect place to set up what we describe as an integrated field research network for monitoring uh, ongoing changes and testing uh, adaptation strategies uh, in the real world as these changes take place. And in terms of who would be involved, uh, many of the players that we talk about in the paper are already doing uh, a lot of work in this area. And, and uh, USDA in particular has had a very active uh, agricultural field research program now going back, uh, you know, literally probably a century, but certainly over the past several decades, they've had a very active program in terms of uh, monitoring and improving agricultural systems. And we know that the land-grant universities, in part with support from USDA and, and, and others, uh, have their own uh, research sites sprinkled across uh, the U.S., Midwest, and elsewhere. And then the private sector, uh, farmers themselves, but also the, the major uh, industry providers such as Pioneer and, and Monsanto and the other major companies that have been involved with improving corn and soybean varieties have a very large uh, network of their own of, of research sites. However, currently these are not integrated and we're not able to take all of the information that's coming uh, from these research sites and, and pool them uh, using tools such as uh, those that have been developed to analyze big data uh, to actually monitor what's happening in terms of, for instance, pest and disease movement uh, across the Midwest, uh, to monitor the direct impact of the flooding events uh, that I described earlier, as well as high temperatures, which uh, have a very negative impact on yield uh, especially if they come at particular times uh, for uh, corn in particular, but, but also soybeans to some extent. So it sounds from your description like the problem may be less of one of, you know, data gathering. There are a lot of organizations already doing that and more one of, you know, achieving data interoperability and, you know, getting the various organizations to, to pool those resources and to make some sense of them kind of all together. That's exactly right, and, and there's, uh, we call this open data, uh, and, and there's been 
quite a large movement uh, toward open data in, in many other domains, for instance, uh, in the genomic uh, area of science, uh, a, a number of uh, open data portals have been uh, assembled for that purpose. But And we're starting to see uh, uh, efforts such as one that's been organized in part by the U.S. government called GODAN, which is the Global Open Data for Agriculture and Nutrition Initiative uh, that was uh, launched a, a couple of years ago, where... Uh, a number of governments and, and other entities have come together and are promoting the concept of open data when it comes to ag and nutrition, uh, but we're not actually seeing it practiced as much as it could and should be in order to uh, provide uh, everyone uh, within the agri-food system with all the information they need uh, to really understand uh, what the challenges are today and, uh, and what they're likely to be in the future. And then as experiments, field experiments in particular, are conducted to explore different adaptation responses, those results from those field studies ought to be reported up into an open interoperable uh, network uh, uh, among public and private sector partners to actually inform and, uh, and implement uh, better practices for improving our response to climate change. That's a great overview. And moving to the practical side of things a little bit, in your article, you touch on four areas where a network such as the one you described might make contributions. And the first of those was improving crops. And I was just hoping you could describe a little bit what that means. So as we highlight in the paper, uh, our crops have a tremendous potential uh, to overcome the impacts of climate change. And we have lots of empirical evidence for that. Uh, we know that climate change is already increasing temperatures and changing precipitation patterns here in the U.S. Midwest. But we also know that we've been continuing to see yield gain uh, in these crops despite uh, those changes. And so that's obviously direct evidence that the crops have the potential to overcome the sorts of changes that we've already seen. However, we really don't know enough about uh, this natural variation and, and how um, these crops are going to respond to uh, additional uh, both abiotic impacts such as ozone, higher temperature, as well as biotic factors, biological challenges to the crops, including pests and disease. And uh, we also don't know how uh, climate change will impact the nutritional content of the crops uh, as because uh, crops uh, such as we grow here in the U.S. Midwest are in fact very, very important sources for many uh, micronutrients uh, and other factors that are present in our food system that are essential for human health. And so this is um, one of the areas that we highlight that would be important for uh, improving crops uh, in, on a, in the field. Uh, but there are, in fact, additional areas that can be explored uh, through the sort of an integrated field research network that we've proposed, uh, such as some of the more advanced molecular tools, uh, things like uh, RNAi, uh, the ability to up and down regulate green, uh, genes, and, uh, in fact, uh, further studies of, of a really important factor that's been underappreciated up until now, which is the, the microbiome. Uh, and in particular, the, the microbiome that's present within the soil, which probably is yet another source of potential uh, improvements 
to making uh, plants better able to uh, respond in a, in a positive way to the impacts of climate change. Uh, the soil uh, interacts with plants in, in a very specific way, especially with regard to moisture stress. And, uh, and this is uh, for sure another fruitful area of research uh, that could feed up into the network and make it possible to better adapt to climate change. Okay. And, and moving along, you know, what kind of effects would you expect the research network to have uh, in adapting to you know, pest and disease threats? You touched on that a little bit already. Yeah, we... we absolutely know that um, pests and disease are on the move uh, throughout the U.S. Midwest, but also elsewhere throughout the world, in part due to climate change. Uh, and uh, we've had uh, some tropical diseases uh, that uh, have uh, been identified uh, originally in Brazil, for instance, the uh, soybean rust that, that could uh, move into the U.S. Midwest and the uh, network could be a great place uh, to monitor uh, for the movement of those pests and diseases as they come into new areas of the Midwest. And we could be uh, integrating uh, field test sites where we're monitoring uh, the uh, ability of specific control measures to control uh, those pests and disease and, and feed them up into a network that then allows us to, to uh to track the movement of, of those pests and, and also test particular methods of control that could be used to minimize their uh, impact. And moving along, you also talk about sustainable agricultural practices, and I'm wondering about the role of the research network in promoting those. Yes. Um, one of the, the things that's been recognized, uh, not just in the U.S., but elsewhere, is that uh, there's a whole suite of practices uh, which are are now generally described as climate smart agricultural practices that could be employed uh, to help uh, not only respond uh, to the impacts of climate change, but in some cases actually mitigate uh, future releases of greenhouse gases, especially efforts to trap uh, uh, carbon dioxide in the soil profile, build up soil carbon, which obviously helps to mitigate future climate change, but in fact also creates a plant soil system that is more resilient uh, to the impact of climate change. Okay, and the last thing you touched on was deploying innovative IT capabilities. And you know, you you mentioned this a little bit earlier that there's a, a data problem where you know you have a lot of data from a lot of different sources. So obviously, data curation and data integration is going to be a big part of this. Um, but are there other concerns as well? Absolutely. Uh, we, we see that uh, there's an explosion uh, that we've all experienced in our personal lives of, uh, of IT capabilities. We uh, can hardly live uh, without our uh, iPhones and our Androids and our, our other uh, personal uh, uh, IT devices. Um, but, and, we've, and we've seen this happen uh, and have impacts in, in agriculture as well. And, and for sure, for anybody who's seen uh, the inside of a modern uh, U.S. farm tractor, uh, you know that it's covered with uh, computer screens and equipped with a, a wide array of IT devices that uh, make it possible for the farmer to utilize uh, an incredible amount of information that's coming in through GPS, uh, geographic information systems, and other approaches 
for making it possible for the farmer to to actually manage uh, his or her field on a not a per, even a per acre basis, but a per square meter basis to uh, uh, plant specific varieties and specific portions of fields, possibly even varying the plant population, and uh, and therefore making it possible to really optimize uh, plant production uh, on a very specific basis. And as we uh, are seeing farmers do that, we're not only utilizing uh, a lot of data, but uh, we're generating a tremendous amount of data through uh, collection uh, on tractors and other devices as they go planters as they go through the field and uh, those data uh, we it is believed uh, ought to be uh, made available in an appropriate way uh, as open data in order to make it possible for all of the advances that we've seen in the IT world on, on big data uh, analytical capabilities to to help uh, from an overall system perspective, advance farming and, and responses to climate change. Another uh, potential source of data, which is uh, a bit controversial, but for sure is likely to come uh, more and more in the future, is the use of drones uh, to collect data. We already have a, a tremendous amount of data collection that takes place through satellites and airplanes, but uh, unmanned uh, vehicles are for sure going to be an additional source of data that uh, individual farmers will want to use, but uh, there could be, and, and we argue in the paper should be, protocols established such that properly anonymized data uh, can be pooled and used uh, in, in a big data approach to help better inform uh, uh, approaches to adapting to climate change. We think the challenge uh, is significant enough uh, that there ought to be uh, a, a workable solution here, a consensus around getting over some of the privacy issues uh, and realizing that we, we quite literally are all in this together and we need to be finding ways to use uh, these huge potential sources of data in ways that can uh, better inform adaptation responses. Right. And we've spoken so far mostly about the U.S. Midwest, and that is the, you know, the focus of the article. But do these ideas and will the results of this research network have applicability outside of that, you know, in other parts of the world? The topic of this particular paper was the U.S. Midwest, uh, largely because when we originally convened uh, back uh, in September 2014 at Washington University, that was the topic at hand, which was climate, char climate change and its impact on the U.S. Midwest. However, we believe that the sorts of uh, uh, innovations and uh, advances that can be researched here in the Midwest are in fact, or would be directly applicable to many uh, other areas around the world. And not only areas that uh, experience similar climates, uh, we know that uh, there are uh, today uh, systems, for instance, especially in South America, uh, in both Brazil and Argentina, that uh, are quite similar uh, in terms of the, the scale of operations, and, uh, and they're using the same degree of mechanization, and in some cases are, are seeing uh, crop yields that uh, are as high and, and, and possibly even higher under more favorable climate conditions than we are able to see, get here in the U.S. 
And, uh, and looking over to Europe, uh, we know that, for instance, corn yields uh, in much of uh, Central and Southern Europe are, are very similar uh, to what we see here in the U.S. So the approaches uh, that we research here through the network and the innovations that in big data, the use of that, the, the new sustainable ag practices, um, uh, the advances in, in new crop varieties, all of these should have direct applicability to other parts of the world, uh, including areas such as China, uh, South Asia, and, and perhaps even Sub-Saharan Africa, where we know that uh, there are active breeding efforts today. Uh, China is the, the number two producer of corn, for instance, and uh, there's huge opportunities to improve uh, productivity uh, in, a, in a country like that. And, and we absolutely believe that the types of innovations that we could uh, develop through the network uh, would have uh, application uh, to those other world areas. And just to close it out, I was hoping you could give us an idea of, you know, where things stand today and what the next steps for getting this research network underway actually will be. Well, we're seeing uh, pretty good yields uh, for corn and soybeans now, but it's not too far in the future where we would expect to see climate change to really start to have uh, very negative impacts on, on these crops and that we need to take action now to prepare for that. And so uh, the convening of a larger workshop uh, to, to begin planning the particular actions that are necessary to implement uh, the recommendations on our paper is what we believe is the logical next step. And we're hoping to bring those parties together uh, possibly in September of uh, this year uh, here in St. Louis. And we will definitely look forward to reading about the results. Uh, Dr. Gustafson, thank you very much for joining me today. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to join you and, and really appreciate the fact that uh, Bioscience uh, chose to include this uh, our paper uh, in your publication and, and even featured on the cover. That was, was uh, very much appreciated. It was our pleasure. Um, thanks again, Dr. Gustafson. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences. Check the links below to read the article, and feel free to leave us a comment or send us a message on Twitter. Talk to you next time.